Welcome to IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. The rules have changed. Good day wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio, for Friday, January 18th, 2008. This week, episode 65 comes to you from Studio B in Coriopolis, Pennsylvania. My name is Joe Hughes, or Radio Joe. Here with me in the studio is my co-host, the Z-Man. Hey, good afternoon, Joe. Good afternoon, Cliff. Great to have you back in the studio here. And the wingman, Chris Boisel. Good afternoon, Joe. Good afternoon. Hey, I'm glad that feedback went away, Chris. That was rough. <laughs> All right. Today's segments include the microband trivia quiz. Mr. Maurice Baum, of, he's the president of Environmental Research and Restoration. And we've got Louis Relly, president of LJR Realty, Relly Construction, and Relly IAQ Solutions. We'll come in with the roundup. We're also expecting our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Weil, to be on the line here any minute. But first, let's go to thanking our sponsors. Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IEQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. And John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. Okay, as usual, to contact the show, you can either call us and uh, go to the, you go to the talk shoe, T-A-L-K-S-H-O-E, com website or you can go to our iaq radio website we've got some directions there for how to contact the show our show id number is one five four seven we also appreciate any suggestions or we'll take questions by email at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com or cliff zlotnick at unsmoke.com you can also post questions at the iaqradio.com website and answer those microband trivia questions uh we've had a little more uh a little more luck with getting the website together with the wingman here. He's been very helpful. We're uh, making some nice improvements there. So, last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. I'm going to turn it over to my co-host for the microband trivia quiz. Thanks, Joe.
congratulations go out to Daniel Reed of Fort Myers, Florida, for correctly answering two microband trivia questions. Number 62, anosmia is the loss of the sense of smell. And number 63, refrigeration is the transfer of heat from a place where it is not wanted to a place where its presence is not undesirable. The microband trivia question for Friday, January 18, 2008 is as follows. Wormwood had been used medicinally since the Middle Ages, primarily to exterminate tapeworm infestations while leaving the human host uninjured and even rejuvenated by the experience. At the end of the 18th century, the herb developed a recreational vogue when people discovered that they could get high off of it. The problem was the means of delivery, as it was unacceptably bitter in taste. A Frenchman de developed the answer by inventing a beverage which delivered both the herb and alcohol in a stunningly tart beverage with a flavor resembling licorice. Name the beverage. Back to you, Joe. All right. Thank you, Cliff. And uh, thank you, Dan, for being patient with us. He had those answers up there a little while back, and uh, when the wingman left, we kind of, or not the wingman, CJ left, we weren't sure how to pull him up here, but we're, we're making progress. Absolutely. Our first speaker today, or our first guest, is Mr. Maurice Baum. Mr. Baum is a pioneer in the indoor air quality profession, restoring the environment through education since the 1970s. He's the president of Environmental Research and Restoration and a 14-year veteran with the American Industrial Hygiene Association. He's got in, uh, in credentials that include the Certified Microbial Consultant and the Certified Hazardous Materials Manager. He's also licensed to test for asbestos, chemical and biological and indoor air quality issues. Mr. Baum is also qualified to conduct advanced clandestine laboratory investigations in this regard. He participated in Florida's multi-jurisdictional counter-drug training task force. He's an instructor at Florida Atlantic University and was a leading participant in drafting Florida's recently approved mold legislation. Maurice is also the chapter director of the South Florida Indoor Air Quality Association chapter, and he has testified as an expert in state and federal courts. Strong advocate for consumer education and professionalism in the IAQ industry, also active in the community in numerous outreach ministries, including the International Fellowship of Christians and Jews, Lifeline Pregnancy Center, Life Teen Youth Group, and Jubilee Center. And accordingly, uh, I understand personally he is a happily married man, according to his wife Lillian, a successful de defense attorney and enjoys raising exotic birds with his grandchildren hanging out and working with them on the birds. So welcome, Maurice. Let's see if we can get you unmuted. He's an expert. Ah. He says he knows better than you. He's got the stuff to prove it all to. And he knows just what to do. And he'll get right to it just as soon as you fill out this form and that one too. And lay all your cards on the table for the expert. The expert. Hello, Maurice. How are you? Good afternoon, Joe, Cliff, and Chris. It's good to be here this afternoon. Yeah, it's good to have you. Welcome. Great to have you here. Can you tell us a little bit about your company, Environmental Research and Restoration? Are you the, the founder of that company? Yes, sir. Environmental Research and Restoration 
started in 1972 as a training, environmental training facility, uh, mainly for general industry and healthcare. Uh, probably, I would say, in 1974, late 74, we were called by one of the hospitals that we had uh, conducted training for and asked to do some consulting pre-AAJCO, uh, pre a, a, a Joint Commission Inspection the hospital is having. And then from there, we expanded and started doing more consulting and more indoor air quality work. Indoor air quality actually started in 1975, the first part of 1975, in the healthcare industry. Uh, so you have been uh, at this for quite a while. I, I, I'm sure you've been through the ups and the downs down there. You know, we've had uh, the mold is gold rush and so on and so forth. And lately, with no major storms hitting the Florida area, what's, what's been the impact on your, your business? Well, I think, you know, it would be fooling anybody to try to say that we haven't felt the impact. We had uh, 1977 was tremendously slower uh, with no hurricanes for two years in 76 or 77. Things had slowed. But keep in mind, we were in the industry way before the hurricanes. And it's, uh, we were in the, in the industry after Hurricane Andrew. Then we went until 1973, 74, before we had the first hurricane again of major consequences and uh you know we remained a viable business a viable industry and i believe that if you're a professional in what you do you hold your head up high and you can face yourself in the morning you know ethics is is something that uh you do when nobody is looking and if you keep an ethical company you're going to get business and you're going to stay busy and so even though we slowed down in 2007 uh, we, we were constantly steady. Okay, 2007, so 06, 07, we're a little slower. I think we, I got a little confused for a moment there, but now Cliff, go ahead. Well, in looking at your CV, Maurice, it seems that you have a lot of experience in legal issues, and I've got a couple of questions there. Can you tell me what a forensic study is? A uh, forensic study is basically what it, what it implies. It's a study involving uh, court issues to where uh, legal issues, court issues may be involved and uh, where you will come in and do a complete study of a building uh, 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 I'm just trying to find that question on my page. I know I had some notes on it. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. A, a, a forensic study is, is pretty much as as it implies, because it is a governmental, a, usually something illegal, a legal study. And when you come into uh, forensic building problems, many times you have to find something where, whether it's going to be workers' comp related, uh, whether it's going to be a suit against another contractor. There's several times roofing contractors quite often will use a solvent that is called Flexmatic or Neoflex. This solvent contains many toxic uh, solvents, and it, it's quite often put around pipes or penetrations into the roof, the roof line. And if you've got a hairline crack, the Flexmatic or the Neoflex uh, can drain down into the building. And then you put off a very strong kind of a petroleum type or a distillate odor, uh, a rubberized odor, but it can cause a lot of nauseousness, headaches, and even brain tumors, brain damage, central nervous system damage, and trying to find where these odors are coming from. Sometimes your solvent scans can uh, be methane-related. 
because you don't have a, uh, and, and this can also be forensic. And to where a builder, we had a situation recently to where a disgruntled employee dropped a beer can during construction down inside of a drain pipe, not a drain pipe, but an exhaust for the, uh, an exhaust pipe for the uh, sewer gases from the bathroom stopping up the drain. And so the methane was coming into the unit. This was in a condominium in South Florida. Mm. Uh, in trying to trace it, we finally found this through fiber optics, and uh, and so basically it's a study into a building of odors, not always odors, but usually odors or issues, sometimes even mold-related, but issues that will probably go to court, situations that will go to court, and you will do a complete uh, a complete study. Okay, and it's not always mold. Cliff, did you want? Follow up, Maurice. Okay. We're talking a little bit about government. I know you were very involved with the recently passed Florida legislation that licenses. I, well, maybe you can explain a little better for me. It's going to, I believe, require some licensing for mold remediators and assessors. Can you tell us a little bit about your involvement, and then we'll go into a little more detail about what I believe is in place now, and then what will be in place later. What we've got at present, we spent uh, the, we've been involved, or I've been involved personally in the mold legislation process since 2003. It took us until 2007 to finally get a bill passed. We had a bill passed the previous year, but the governor vetoed it for a few reasons. Uh, and so we, the bill was redrafted, trying to address all the areas that the governor had had, but we had a new governor, keep in mind, and uh, the bill passed, but it didn't pass with no hurdles. We had some situations in the bill where the original language of the bill favored one organization over another, and it actually called for the certification of the person doing the certification or doing mold inspections had to be hold a specific certification by a specific organization, or only one organization offered that, that uh, certification. And we had to fight and work hard to get this language pulled from the bill to make it a fair bill for everybody in the industry. At the last minute, about 42 hours before the bill went to the floor, the bill was pulled by special interest groups in the state of Florida, and they threw in a grandfather clause, which, because originally the bill would have taken effect uh, upon signing, which would have been back in July of 2000. And, uh, uh, 2007. Mm -hmm. Now the bill really won't won't go into effect until 2010. But there are some isolated aspects of the bill that went in, that were retroactive or went into effect immediately upon signing, and that is the insurance requirements. And if you've got anyone doing a mold assessment in your home in the state of Florida or doing mold remediation, you have the right to ask that person for a copy or a certificate of their insurance. If they're not insured, they're in violation of the new law. Now, granted, you don't have to have a license. The licensure portion and the education portion really doesn't, won't take effect until, and the testing won't take effect until 2010. Okay. Cliff okay. had a follow-up. Yeah, I guess I've got a couple of follow-up questions. I guess the first one is, are you an advocate of government involvement in mold remediation and mold inspection? I'm an advocate of free enterprise. 
let me say that first of all. I am an advocate. Uh, I think that we needed some kind of regulation in Florida because of the moldy ethics that had that were taking place and, and in many areas still are taking place in our state. Uh, and, and that's the only reason. But, you know, there's an old saying, watch out what you wish for. <laughs> right, right. Yes, sir. And anytime you bring the government into something, and the bill as we find it right now, uh, the enforcement of the bill has been turned over to the Florida Department of Business and Professional Regulations. That department basically is controlled by the building or the construction industry. The Florida Builders Association managed to get and get uh, to get the construction industry or general contractors exempt from the bill. And now they're not exempt from the training. They still need to have the same training that a mold remediation contractor would have, but they don't have to have the license because their general contractor license licenses them to do mold remediation. But now if they're not holding themselves out to be a mold remediator, if they watch how they word their contracts and they go in and say we're doing remodeling and they don't mention mold remediation, they don't need a license, they don't need the training, they don't need the schooling, they're completely exempt from all aspects of the bill. Now the Department of Business and Professional Regulations says that mold remediation, this is the removal of drywall, they're saying that it's really no more than glorified demolition and that in the state of Florida, in order to conduct demolition, you have to have pull a permit and be a licensed general contractor. So basically, with, with all that said, the DDPR is leaning towards preferentiality towards the towards general contractors in enforcement of this bill. And uh, if they had their way, they would like to see all remediation, all remediators be GCs, licensed general contractors. Cliff, did you have another one? Yeah, one of the comments that, that you made is that, you know, according to the new law now, the consumer has the right and the opportunity to ask the remediator or the inspector or the general contractor, whoever is affected, for a copy of their insurance policy or, you know, just so that they can confirm that they're insured. But, you know, I can have business insurance. It doesn't mean that I have pollution insurance it doesn't mean that i have professional liability insurance is there something in this bill that the so that the consumer knows what sorts of insurances would be the proper type yes there is the okay. mold assessor or the inspector the uh, uh must have under the new bill a minimum of one million dollars errors and emissions okay good specifically to environmental issues. Okay. The mold remediator must have specific pollution, uh, and it, it has to be a mold pollution rider, specifically to mold pollution, a $1 million uh, liability. Good. And how are things coming with respect to putting the rest of the regulation in place? I mean, you, I, I guess we have a, a bill that was passed, and that put certain uh, requirements on the Bureau to develop some kind of regulation and some kind of guidelines for people to follow with respect to this training and education. What kind of progress is being made there? It's moving extremely slow. Uh, the Indoor Air Quality Connections had an article a month before last on how slow things are moving with the DDPR. They have made no effort at, as of uh, to date, and I'm in communication with them almost uh, bi-weekly. 
the the Florida Atlantic University has made an offer, which I also teach at FAU, and I'm also director of the School of Environmental Science uh, in relate to indoor in related relation to indoor air quality issues, and I'm the faculty selection board. And we have made an offer, or the school, University of Florida Atlantic University, has made an offer to DBPR to draft preliminary requirements uh, for their review and or acceptance. And we're waiting to see. We've also made, uh, applied to the governor for FAU to uh, have someone from FAU to sit on the board. If they do decide to, to hold a, a separate review, review board, for the formulation of the indoor air quality or the mold uh, remediation and mold assessors bill. However, DBPR has told us that they have no intentions of establishing a separate board. They're planning to put it under the construction board, which is already established, and uh, which I feel is a mistake, but if that's the way it's going to be, then we, they still have to draft the requirements. And uh, that's what FAU has offered at this point right now. We, FAU has offered to draft preliminary requirements and uh, for their review and or approval to make it a little bit easier because the Department of Business and Professional Regulations is so overwhelmed right now. This was the last thing they wanted dumped in their lap. And part of the reason that Governor Jeb Bush vetoed the bill that he had vetoed originally is because DBPR basically had a had his ear, and uh, that's the last thing they wanted was another regulation, regulatory uh, issue for them to have to look over. And also, there were some special interest groups that, uh, you know, we don't have a hundred percent verification as to who who they were. We have some suspects, but uh, I'd rather not even mention that without having proof. Absolutely. Now, Maurice, like the big question I get is, you know, will and I guess all you can do at this point is guess for us. Um, we have a lot of people that are in Florida right now doing mold remediation, doing investigations. They've gone through training, whether it be through an IAQA course, a Florida Atlantic course, an IICRC course, a Restoration Industry Association course. Um, they may have some kind of certification that goes along with that course or an independent certification. What What's the chances of some of that being recognized in, in one way or another when things finally get ironed out discussions that we've had with dbpr and what was the intent of state representative carl domino who was the original author of the bill and he was the author of the house bill uh the intent was that if you had a certification that was accredited by a third party accrediting board uh that you would not have to take re retake another examination you would still have to be licensed now, when you look at uh, the American Indoor Air Quality uh, Council certifications, they're third-party accredited by the same accrediting body that accredits the certified industrial hygienist and the uh, environmental safety engineers. And, uh, and there are uh, numerous other organizations that have third-party accre accreditation. And this is what we're hoping for is that if you have a certification by a third party accredited, that is accredited by a third party accrediting board, that you won't have to sit for a new examination. Now, that's not definite yet, and it's still in the works. Okay. We can appreciate that, and I appreciate giving it a stab anyway. And that's all I can do when people ask me as well. 
Um, Cliff had put together some some questions from your website on some some other issues like um, you know indoor air quality. I know one of his very in, you know things he's very interested in is odor assessments and and how they're conducted. You talked about one with respect to roofing. What other types of odor problems have you been working with? We we've dealt with a uh, with numerous quite often. When our company gets called, it's especially on commercial, on the commercial end, it's it's usually because of a potential workers' comp claim or because of a liability issue somewhere. Somebody has complained or a liability issue, then they'll they will bring you in and they want to find uh, find a solution or to show a proactive. It's usually actually a reactive by the industry, whether it's healthcare or whether it's general industry. They usually react, and, and uh, they want to call it proactive, and in a sense it is, because they're not just turning their back on a situation when it's brought to their attention. Uh, we've had several situations, cases, that were went into federal court. We had one that I can remember just recently. And let me say one thing. If you're in this industry and a situation gets brought into court, especially into a federal court system, the attorneys are going to basically bring anyone who stepped foot into that building into the lawsuit because they look at the the insurance company or the builder, whoever is being sued, has only so their pockets are only so deep, and they feel they if they can bring in another ten or twelve people and they can get ten thousand dollars from each one of them, you've got an additional hundred thousand dollars to add to the prize of that lawsuit. And so they will bring anyone in from the assessor to the remediator to the plumber, the AC contractor, anyone who has worked in that home or in that building will most likely be brought into the suit. We had a situation which was a federal case, and it was a retirement home, uh, three-story facility, almost 200 rooms. And the building had been severely damaged by both uh, uh, Hurricane Jean and Hurricane Wilma in Florida. Uh, and and the owner of the building, the mold and the water issues were so bad that they had to vacate all of the residents of the retirement facility into another building, and they filed claims against the insurance company. The building, they felt from the studies that had been done, that was beyond repair, and they wanted to demolish the building. They actually had gotten permits to demolish the building, and the insurance company decided that... Uh, if the building was gone, they had no recourse. And so they went to uh, court and got an injunction to stop the building from being demolished. It ended up going into federal court. And uh, unfortunately, the insurance company hired a good professional, had all the acronyms after his name, had a, P a Ph.D. after his name, very informed individual, but unfortunately he made a grave mistake. He came into a building with almost 200 rooms, and instead of bringing an assistant with him from Ohio, he came down from Ohio to investigate this building for the, his client, the insurance company. And so he went on the street corner and picked up a day laborer. And mm. to do, it, to do uh, 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 what is considered, you know, we, we, you know, a lot of times you have to do invasive investigations where you've got to go into the wall cavities. And instead of drilling a very small hole the size of a pencil and taking an air sample, he wanted to get an actual view behind the wall. 
and where you normally, and, and this is sometimes done, but you usually build a containment around the area you're going to cut, a glove bag or something to contain the debris and the microbial spores from being released. Well, this day laborer, he told me he wanted holes in all these rooms about a foot in diameter. He takes a hammer and he pounds the holes with a hammer. Mm -hmm. And he literally beat the, the daylight out of the building. They never put any of the drywall back. They just left it laying on the floor. And areas that had no microbial contamination to start with now had to be repaired because the drywall was damaged. They didn't follow industry standards. Whether or not his study or his analytical data was sufficient or scientifically sound, because of the methodology that they used, the attorneys were able to, to, to disregard or to say that it was not scientifically sound or it wasn't industry standards that were used, so his entire study was thrown out and wasn't allowed as admissible into court. Uh, needless to say that the client that we were testifying for, that we worked for, received multi-million dollars in the settlement. It was a large settlement. Uh, and whether he was entitled to 100% of it or not is, 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 is not here nor there. It's just that you've got to be careful. You've got to cross your T's. And anything that you do may come back to haunt you. Did they end up tearing the building down or repairing it, Maurice? Uh, they, they ended up demolishing the building. And this was the, this was the, 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 the uh, defense on the other side that they felt that the intent was to demolish the building anyway. It didn't make any difference. Interesting. But, uh, we, um, we've got a couple more quick questions, and then we're going to take a, a break and switch over to Lewis Relly, but and then we'd like to bring you back at the end. Um, before we do, I had a, a question on radon testing we noted on your website. You do radon testing in, in Florida there, and I'm just curious how big of a problem or issue is that in Florida? For most areas of the state, radon is a very minor issue. Uh, it's mandated by law for schools and for hospitals, healthcare facilities. But surprisingly, we've been finding radon in high-rise buildings and up in the 8th, 9th, 10th, even the 18th floor. We've been finding radon and we're suspecting that it's coming from the soil that the concrete was made with, the cement was made with, hmm. uh, the stucco and the cement, and it's, uh, that it's bleeding through and it's coming from the soil that was used. Radon is an issue. It's an issue throughout the United States. It's worse in certain areas than others. It's not as high of an issue in Florida as it is in other parts of the country, but we do have radon, and I mean, it, it, it's a relatively moderate problem in certain areas of the state. Okay. Maurice, as someone who looks at a lot of buildings, which types of building envelopes pose the greatest problems in southern Florida? I think the greatest, you know, it's difficult to say because we've seen, you know, construction defects really manifest themselves after, after a big storm or a hurricane. And, and so we found single-family living situations, the construction problems deficiencies to be just as great in single-family living as we find in high-rise. But I would say the high-rise uh, buildings uh, probably pose the greatest threat because the problem you have is during that construction phase that if you have leaks or water intrusions while the building is being built, many times you've got situations where the contractor will try to get ahead of himself. As soon as the building is under roof, they start to hang drywall. The windows aren't in yet. 
and Florida will get these rainy seasons. You'll get these strong storms. You'll get 35-mile-an-hour winds that will blow, which is only for one hour during that rainy season, that storm each day. But it blows water into the building, and now it wicks up the drywall, and you can't paint over it. You've got to remove it. But that water also, if it blows in on an 18th floor, or if you get a pipe leak, quite often plumbers, when they go to pressurize a line, a line will blow out, or they pressurize a line, and on Friday night, a cap will blow and you'll get a leak. And this water, not only does it cascade from the 18th floor, I'm using the 18th as an example, the 18th downward, each floor that it hits, that water will spread or migrate. And sometimes it will only migrate feet, sometimes it will migrate 50 or 60 feet. And then it will find another penetration to go down, and it goes down to the next floor. And so you've got your cascading issues and your migrating issues. And therefore, I say that the high-rise buildings, all of them, are a, a problem waiting to happen. If you're on a lower floor and there's a flood or a pipe break overhead, eventually it's going to work its way down and you're going to have water intrusion from overhead. And let's hope it's not sewer water because then you have a bacteria issue besides just the microbial issue that may develop if it's not dried out fast enough. And even if you dry out a bacteria issue fast enough, a sewer issue, a sewer, a sewer break, uh, immediately you still have the bacteria issue to deal with. Maurice, I understand you're the um, IAQA chapter director for South Florida, and I just wanted to uh, make sure we mention that before we move on. What kind of uh, seminars do you have coming up, or what's been your most popular ones? Our most popular have been, you know, the, the uh, we held a statewide uh, seminar last year, which uh, had a good turnout. We had a little over 100 people, but we've had over 100, had as many as 160, 170 people for just a one-day seminar. And some of our best have been when we brought in Dr. Jim Penacow from Mayo Clinic. It was, uh, he's the research scientist who uh, did all the work on sinusitis, and Mayo Clinic now says that we need to quit calling sinusitis sinusitis, call, call out what it really is, fungal sinusitis. Uh, they did numerous biopsies, and in every biopsy they found this was up into the sinus cavity above the eyes, large deposits of fungi growing in the sinus cavities. Uh, they've now gotten a $10 million grant. They're extending that study into asthma. Some of the other uh, uh, seminars that we had that were very good was uh, innovative remediation techniques, solution, or industry pollution. We had one on moldy ethics, which was very well attended. Uh, we try to hold three to four workshops every year. How would and people contact your chapter if they'd like to join or, or attend one of these seminars? Okay, as far as joining, you join the Indoor Air Quality Association, and you can auto you're automatically become associated with the tra chapter that you attend the workshops on. Uh, once your name is listed for attendance in that workshop, you're now related to that workshop as being, I mean, to that, to that chapter as being a member of that chapter, but there's no official membership in the chapter. There's no dues in the chapter. Uh, but how would they contact? They can go to our website, ERR2003, at bellsouth.net. Okay, and is that the same place that people that might have questions or want services could contact you as well? Yes, sir. Great. Anything that we uh, forgot that you'd like to add? I think you've covered the bases.
Great, Maurice. Can we bring you back at the end when we do the roundup here? We've got Lewis Relly coming on to talk about some uh, sampling and uh, filtration or uh, with the downdraft table that he's invented. Uh, hopefully we can bring you back. I look forward to hearing that myself. I use his cassette, and it's a very good tool. Thank you very much. Great, great. We'll bring you back in about uh, 20 minutes or so. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Maurice. Okay, let's cue up a little. We got a little uh, intro music for, for Mr. Relly. Riding on the city of New Orleans. You can just play this song. Illinois Central, Monday morning rail. Fifteen cars and fifteen restless riders. Three conductors and twenty-five sacks on mail. All along the southbound Cliff. You hey. found a good one there, buddy. How about the one the introduction for Lewis, please? Okay, well, our, our next guest is a native son of New Orleans. Lewis Relly Jr. has been in the construction, environmental investigation, and remediation industries for over 30 years. He's president of LJR Realty, Relly Construction, and Relly IAQ Solutions. Lewis is a certified microbial remediation supervisor, licensed general and residential contractor, licensed real estate agent, and level one thermographer. His personal experiences dealing with microbial situations in buildings led him to develop several revolutionary industry products, including the Relly filtration table, as well as the Relly smart sampler and smart cassette. Mr. Relly's companies are all based in the greater New Orleans area. He has experienced firsthand the devastation brought on by Hurricane Katrina and seen how a natural disaster of unprecedented scale and magnitude requires the resources and expertise of indoor air quality professionals to restore a city devastated by flooding and mold growth. We welcome Lou Relly to the show today. Lou, do you have an engineering or biology background? Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome, Lou. I'm sorry I couldn't hear your question as you unmuted me. Okay, I'm okay. sorry. Uh, do you have an engineering or biology background? No, I actually do not. I um, became involved in indoor air quality um, out of necessity as opposed to intention. Mm -hmm. what, and what was the reason you got involved here, Lewis? We, uh, back in the late 90s, we had a very sick child, and the... After constant trips to the doctor in the hospital, they couldn't identify what the problem was. And <clears throat> research tended me to believe that we had a problem in our residence. We had several um, very competent CIHs investigate the house and always came back below detection limits and air sampling. And 
my construction background kicked in. I knew we had a problem. I, didn't, I eliminated the envelope as being an issue, which drove me to the HVAC system. Upon removing the HVAC system, we found that it was, in fact, the problem and corrected that problem. My son got well almost immediately, and we determined that we weren't the only people in the world having this problem and needed to change, to some extent, how we investigated some indoor air quality issues. After a few years, we decided filter, and using the filter media was a lot better than using a spore trap for certain situations, and we developed a cassette. The, the downdraft table is something we've used for years. We've uh, designed the roto-molded sealed units because the steel units we had previously made just couldn't be correctly remediated between jobs. What type of, uh, I, I'm assuming you were in the construction business prior to starting the other companies. Is that accurate? Yes, um, I'm actually, my family was in construction and real estate ownership and management for years before I was ever born, and I've just followed in that line. You know, your sample is a pretty unique tool. It provides the opportunity to take samples at different times of the day. What's the advantage of that? Well, we currently have research going on. John Edgar, who's working on his Ph.D. with the Tulane University, of health and tropical medicine. Has been doing research now for a couple of years, and what his latest research has indicated is that many, many different types of microbials correlate in the early morning hours, meaning sometimes uh, three to four hours prior to daybreak, uh, has higher concentration. That's been our, that's been suspect to us for years. Um, there's been a lot of previous research that indicated that um, a lot of people that we've talked to who use Burkhart samplers, for example, have noted those spikes. Our investigation has confirmed that. And we really want to, if you're trying to do a medical um, link to a microbial issue, as an example, it's important to look at exposure. We found that short-term sampling, um, five to 30 minute sampling, often is inadequate for truly, truly giving an example of what's going on in the indoor air. Lewis, let me let me just clarify for the listeners, just so and and for myself as well. You have invented a and you you're the inventor of this sampler i believe it is so you have a sampler that can be programmed to take samples at you know specific times plus you have a sampling cassette that can be used to take long-term sampling is that accurate yeah the sampling cassette is the the key to the sample in that it is not a spore trap it's it, a MCE filter, which it has a much, much higher collection efficiency than a spore trap. And the sampling pump 
ability to turn it on and off at times can be important. But the biggest thing is that we have shown that short-term samples can be terribly inadequate for a lot of microbial investigations. You know, one of the interesting things about your tool that I found fascinating is the fact that you have all these data collection points and capabilities for, you know, hooking the sampler up and, and taking temperature readings and humidity readings and particulate uh, readings and so on and so forth. And I think it's really phenomenal because, you know, if you have a multi-dimensioning or multi-dimensional sampling tool where it seems that all the other samplers out there are strictly one-dimensional. In our investigations, we've found that when, when trying to do a full evaluation of, of what's going on in a building, there's often not just one cause of moisture intrusion into the building, which has led to a microbial issue. It's often much more complex than that. And we, in southeast Louisiana, have such a high humidity problem here that negative building pressurization and the effect between mechanical conditioning of the air and the natural back effect of the building, pressure differentials are, are a problem. The humidity um, in, in the overall building can be a problem. And trying to log all of that information simultaneously was nightmarish to us. So that's why we, we designed those prototype pumps to be able to log all of the information um, simultaneously to allow us to better determine what may be going on in the environment. Lewis, one, one of the questions I've always had, I haven't used your sampler yet, the, the sampling cassette. and from what I've read, the, the brief literature I've read, you can take a pretty long-term sample. How do you determine whether or not you might overload that sample and you won't be able to actually analyze it? Is this analyzed similar to the way like an, an asbestos sample would be analyzed? You've got a, a filter inside there. I'm assuming they you know, cut out a piece of the filter and then you know, dissolve the filter and look for the spores, but is that accurate? Can you verify that for me? Well, it, it's it is somewhat accurate. Let me go backwards. The filter trace that we have is a 2 by 22 millimeter trace. Okay. On a, on a round filter. And what they can do is our, our device after hundreds of prototypes, we have a diffuser nozzle in the, in the inlet of it to disperse evenly across our filter particulate. So you can analyze a portion, a smaller portion of the filter under direct examination. And you could use the remainder of the, of the filter to do other types of examination, culture, uh, or other, uh, other types of, of analysis, or even keep half of it for litigation so that the other side can look at it. So, Impressive. <laughs> Most impressive. Hello. Sorry, but we got a little <laughs> sound effect for you there. Yeah. The, um, the, the reason that we designed it that way 
was so that we had a large enough trace that we could we could collect more particulars. You always, with using with using almost any type of collection device, you want to um, anticipate what you're going to collect. We recommend that you pull between a half a liter of air and one liter of air per minute as a flow rate. And that's going to be determined based on the length of time and what your anticipated loading is going to be from the environment. We found that um, after hundreds of studies, exterior air in New Orleans and Florida, a half a liter of airflow is a, is a good amount um, and does not cause overloading. If you should get into a situation of overloading with having the other parts of the filter, you could always rinse it and then go about it backwards, taking it out, taking an hour clock of it to examine it to get a better feel. Okay, so and, and that you can run it for up to eight hours, is that accurate? At a at a half a liter per minute, 0.5 liters per minute for about eight hours outdoors in New Orleans, you've been able to run those and still not overload? Well, not eight hours, 24 hours. 24 hours, better yet. Okay, interesting. Have you, I, I've been curious, Lewis, I, I always thought this would be a, I was hoping, I don't know, maybe, have you done any, have made any attempts to monitor worker exposure while they're doing remediation using your cassette? No, we have not. That um, there's been several studies with doing that. Uh, Joe Spurgeon, who has a similar type of product in that it uses a filter cassette. Uh, I want to call him a very friendly competitor. His product is the Bi-Air, and he has done some studies on that. We have not done it with the Relic. Okay. Good. You know, my compliments to you, Lewis. I saw a wonderful tip, you know, on your website for, for homeowners, particularly new homeowners that just bought a home that might be under warranty. And what the tip was was the use of a thermal imaging uh, device to locate points of moisture intrusion while the home is still in warranty. You know, can you comment on that? Yes. Uh, we strongly recommend that. It, in all buildings... Uh, and I think Maurice had, had kind of touched on it before. It's not. A, it, it's just a matter of time before you're going to have a moisture problem. And if you can be proactive in identifying those moisture problems before they become a, a, a major issue, it certainly can allow you to correct a minor problem early on before it turns into a major problem. We were just on a job in the recent past where a, a manifold leak on a hot water supply that's close to the slab may have been leaking for an extended period of time, but it didn't manifest until the water heater began to leak because the building envelope was absorbing that moisture. If we had thermal image that thing before, we probably would have picked it up and identified it as an anomaly prior to it becoming visually apparent, and it only became visually apparent because of the, the water source of the water here. That sounds like not only a good tip for homeowners, but for 
people who do investigations and own these cameras sounds like a great marketing tool. Absolutely. And really a valuable service to builders, too. Uh, you know, perhaps after the first good rain after a home or building's been constructed, have a thermographer, you know, go in there and take a look because it's much less expensive to fix these things uh, at the beginning than it is to, you know, allow these problems to fester over time. It is a, uh, it is a very, very great tool to use. To, um, to show those those minor anomalies to allow you to investigate it with all of the trades that's on a construction site it's uh, almost impossible to keep close tabs on it and anything that we can do to cut a problem off early on the better we are you know as a second or third generation builder can you comment on any old building techniques that used to be common to the geography which have been Abandoned with deleterious effect. Uh, yes. So we do historic restoration. So what we find in the historic restoration arena is old techniques of shedding water, of allowing buildings to breathe, of common sense shingling approach to making our, our buildings repel water better tend to be forgotten in today's construction industry. Uh, unfortunately, I like to call it movie set building. <laughs> often, often contractors are more concerned about the ultimate aesthetic finishes as they are to the quality of the performance of the finishes. And uh, a, a prime example is years ago we did not have all of the new pan technologies that are that are finally coming to the marketplace for on the doors and windows mm -hmm. and installing metal pans on doors and windows, especially in plaster and heat application, was so rejected by ultimate buyers in buildings because these things looked ugly. They were very important and would uh, allow a building to function properly, but the purchasers didn't didn't like the appearance of it. it, it and another thing is the older buildings in southeast Louisiana, we had a great abundance of cypress, which is a phenomenal building material in, in the old growth form. They, could, they actually used wood to create shingling effects that lasted for hundreds of years. When these pieces would fall, would fail because of, of one reason or another, the newer builders don't realize that the way they were shaped and the materials they were made out of was very important to the structure that they were on. And they'll come in and replace something to make the face of it look the same as it did without putting drift planes and other architectural features on it to stop it from becoming a problem. We have corrected those problems for my entire business career, and I'm sure that future generations will continue to correct that because people don't understand why they were there and think they only have to have the appearance to be the same on the outside. You had mentioned that you used to use these metal downdraft tables before you developed the rotationally molded one in your business. 
what sort of, or how are you using these downdraft tables? You know, what sort of work were you doing that involved the use of the downdraft table? We've used downdraft tables in, in the construction, fire restoration, uh, prior to ever being involved in microbial remediation. And partic- the reason for it is to remove particulate of, of any size out of the breathing zone and to capture it and be able to control it. In the remediation, we use it to um, for initial rough cleaning outside of our clean rooms, inside of our clean rooms to receive box items as they come into the clean room waiting to be cleaned. And then in our final clean room and inspection room, they're put onto the downdraft tables to be sure that if, if something was missed, that it would not be contaminating the rest of our clean room while we were waiting on the CIH to give final clearance to that particular item. They're used for um, very fine items, papers and stuff like that, to do some drying. Of course, we use a, a, a filter and a air scrubber to um, catch the particulate so we can't add much humidity or moisture to that air stream. But they're, they're a great work platform and controlling and controlling the, the particulars from coming off of the matter. Lewis, how are, how are things going down there in, in New Orleans? Just maybe you could give us a quick summary of uh, what kind of progress is being made and uh, where the stumbling blocks have been. Progress is, is moving along slowly from a governmental side, uh, bureaucracy and special interests have hindered the recovery from a professional building side. We have a uh, an unfortunate drop in quality of the construction practices across the board, and people are trying to minimize expense, and they're once again often building media uh, uh, a stage set, something that looks good, and not understanding that they're skipping some essential tasks. And the the problems that they're they're building back into some of the buildings will come back to be a major problem later on. The failure of proper IAQ techniques, um, or even following the IICRC guidelines for microbial and or water restoration is it, almost non-existent for the majority of the work in the area, which is very problematic. There had Right after Katrina, there was uh, some changes that occurred in, in the pest control lobby, I guess, or the pest control firms were... Um, doing some of this microbial remediation. Do you have any, any comments on how that went? That was um, I, that was very unfortunate, and it, it still predominates the market today. Uh, pest control companies would come in and tell homeowners or property owners that we will do a mold remediation on, on your property for reasonably 
inexpensive prices. Uh, for example, an 1,800 square foot structure may cost $2,000. And what most of these places were doing was coming in and spraying some type of biocide on exposed items and then writing a very skillfully worded mold warranty and, oh, and causing people to believe that they had had a properly conducted mold remediation of their property. Unfortunately, these things are just now coming back up to uh, the light of day. We have, we have been asked and have um, often refused because we don't want to get involved in the litigation to go and do third-party verification that there was a successful mold remediation. And the ones we did early on, almost all of them failed. There was, uh, they failed air sampling and they failed visual examination because they were not correctly done. You know, before we uh, end with you, Lewis, two things I'd like to ask you. First, how can our listeners contact you to get more information? Would you rather have them go to the website or would you rather have them call you or do either? And just give them that information so they know how to get in touch with you. The website's probably the uh, best way to get us, and that website is reallyinc.com. That's R-E-L-L-E. Dot in, uh, really ink one word inc.com or they can call the number is on our website but it's also an 800 number 87 okay thank you is there anything dear to your heart that you would like to comment on the um, the only thing that I'd, I'd like to since this show is probably down predominantly listened to by people in the IAQ industry is just to remind people when they're doing investigations, do the best investigation that you can to correctly identify the reasons that your investigation was commissioned. Um, it's very important to those, those people that they often spend a lot of money and they, they need to have good answers. Okay. Lewis, we're going to um, do what we call the roundup. Can you hang in there with us for another couple minutes? Sure. Okay. Just we'll be right back with you. Okay, we've got uh, Zach. I believe the CJ's back with us here for for the roundup. CJ, are you on the line? Yeah, Joe, I'm right here. How are you today? We're good, thanks. Welcome back. How's the new job, buddy? Oh, it's great. It's great. They uh, sent me to New York for a week, and now I'm back in Pittsburgh. Good. Any and uh, it feels like I'm going to adult daycare rather than, rather than work. <laughs> well, you know, I don't really care about your job. I care more about IEQ Radio. How, right. How's our quality control check? We sounding all right? 
Yeah, you guys are sounding all right on my end. Uh, I I have to uh, download the uh, copy that uh, the wingman is making and make sure everything sounds good. But it sounds good on my end. All right, well, good. Great. It's good to hear from you. We want you to continue to uh, to drop in. I've got I guess I've got one question for each of our guests. I guess my my question for uh, Maurice is that I noticed that you're a fan of birds and that you raise these exotic birds and I just wonder what sort of indoor air quality problems uh, people that might raise birds indoors might have that you could you know tips that you might give our listeners things to be concerned about uh, absolutely if you've got birds certain birds especially cockatiels some of your parrots your exotic parrots produce uh, a lot of down and, and as they're molting and going through their molting season, it can cause asthma. There's a lot of allergens factors to birds. Uh, at the same time, birds are very susceptible to bacterial diseases. And if somebody's bird gets sick or dies, there's a good possibility that you may have another food or something else to look for in the home or the residence. But allergen factors with birds, uh, with certain species, parents, especially your cockatiels, uh, can be just as high as, as, as related or mold-related Thank you. All uh, right. I, I guess I've got a question now for Lewis. Uh, Lewis, termite treatments of old, you know, focused on applying chemical barriers to the soil adjacent to buildings' foundations. You know, with all the flooding that was Katrina-related, I'm just wondering whether or not it's washed this termite protection away and it's going to result in more termite-related damage. Can you comment on that? Yes, the um, the flooding definitely has breached the barrier, and the one of the good things that actually happened due to the flooding and the long-term flooding is in areas where we had terrible termite problems, those problems have dramatically subsided because it drowned the termites. Uh-huh. <laughs> we are not using as much of a barrier system nowadays down here as we are baiting systems, right. which is a much better um, better solution. They do do some spot treatments, but we have found that the baiting systems work so much better for a long-term solution. Mm-hmm. What, I, what I wanted to do is give uh, Mar- Maurice, I, can you... Can you, did you have anything you wanted to ask Lewis or any comments you wanted to make? You, you mentioned that you use his uh, cassette. It's, uh, we have used his cassette, and I, I uh, really like the long-term application, especially in healthcare, in OR, and operating rooms, and recovery rooms, uh, where you've got a, basically a, a relatively sterile atmosphere to, uh, to start with, and with a low-term sampling device, the low-flow sampling device, and short-term sampling, many times you will miss something that you would pick up on the long-term, and the really offers you that flexibility to go into a long-term. Now, we have a problem with health care because hospitals don't like to tie an OR room up that long. Uh, they like you to come in and grab a sample, look at the microwave, and, and move on because they want to bring the next patient in because that OR room is, is a money-making for them. At the same time, you have to convince them of the liability issues, and the relationship really gives you the opportunity to reduce their liability because you can find the future. 
Okay, and I wanted to give Lewis the same opportunity. If you had any questions, you've got a user of one of your uh, inventions on the line here. Got a chance to ask a question, Lewis? Anything you wanted to ask or comment on? No, I um, I appreciate Mark's um, support. I would just like to make a comment on something that he had said earlier. As a result of, of Hurricane Katrina and the devastation, we confirmed that the, the comment he made earlier is that after these hurricanes, you can see building defects that would not have manifested before. We have gone out and used thermal imaging and shown architects, engineers, and property owners potential anomalies that they discarded because they couldn't, they, they did not see the damage. After the hurricane, those things showed up visually. And I agree with him that better proactive treatment of these things, uh, of these types of problems, would be better for society. Um, I don't know how we'll educate people, but I wanted to applaud him on that. And he definitely hit something that was major um, down here in the New Orleans area prior to Katrina and showed up verified after Katrina. Very good. Well, I want to thank both of you gentlemen for joining us. Um, we're going to wrap it up here. This is Joe Hughes saying thanks to this week's guests, Maurice Baum and Louis Relly. I also want to thank my co-host, Cliff Slotnick. It's always a pleasure, Joe. Thank you, Cliff. The wingman, Chris Boisel. Our technical director must have got tied up. Uh, I don't know. Uh, hopefully it wasn't uh, physically tied up. You never know with the, the good doctor. And... Uh, Please come back. Of course, I want to thank our growing group of loyal listeners, and uh, thanks to the guy that got the, the microband trivia questions. That was, uh, that was excellent. There's still a few up there. We'll see you all come back again and join us next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production. 